Chapter 24 of The Drums of Jeopardy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Vin Riley. The Drums of Jeopardy by Harold McGrath. Chapter 24. Between Cutty's heart and his throat, there was very little space at that moment for the propelment of sound. Kitty Conover had innocently—he understood that almost immediately and recovered his mental balance—Kitty had innocently thrown a bomb at his feet. It did not matter that it was a dud. The result was the same. For a second, then, all the terror, all the astounding suspension of thought and action attending the arrival of a shell on the battlefield were his. As an aftermath he would have liked very much to sit down. Instead, maintaining the mock gravity of his expression, he offered his arm, which Kitty accepted, still the Grand Duchess of Gerolstein. Pompously they marched into the dining-room. But as Kitty saw Hawksley, she dropped the air confusedly and hesitated. "'Good gracious!' she whispered. "'What's the matter?' Cuddy whispered in turn. "'My clothes!' Oh, "'What's the matter with them?' "'I slept in them!' Oh, that wasn't like a woman. It did not matter how she might look to an old codger, eight hat fifty-two. He didn't count. But a handsome young chap, now in white flannels and sport shirt, his head bound picturesquely. Don't let that bother you, he said. Those duds of his are mine. Still, Cutty was grateful for this little diversion. As he drew back Kitty's chair, he was wholly himself again. At once he dictated the trend of the conversation, moved it whither he willed, into strange channels, gave them all a glimpse of his amazing versatility, with vivid shafts of humour to light up corners. Kuroki, who had travelled far with his master these ten years, sometimes paused in his rounds to nod affirmatively. Hawksley listened intently, wondering a bit. What was the dear old beggar's idea, throwing such fireworks round at breakfast? He stole a glance at Kitty to see how she was taking it, and caught her stealing a glance at him. Instantly both switched back to Cutty. Shortly the little comedy was repeated, because neither could resist the invisible force of some half-conscious inquiry. Third time they smiled unembarrassedly. Mind you, they were both hanging upon Cutty's words, only their eyes were like little children at church, restless. It was spring. Without being exactly conscious of what he was doing, Hawksley began to dress Kitty. That is, he visualized her in ball-gowns, in sports, in furs. He put her on horses, in opera-boxes, in limousines. But in none of these pictures could he hold her. She insisted upon returning to her kitchen to fry bacon and eggs. Then came a twisted thought, rejected only to return, a surprising thought, so alluring that the sense of shame, of chivalry, could not press it back. Cutty's words began to flow into one ear and out of the other, without sense. There was in his heart, put there by the recollection of the jewels, an indescribable bitterness, a desperate cynicism that urged him to strike out, careless of friend or foe. Who could say what would happen to him when he left here? A flash of spring madness? Then to go forth, devil may care. She was really beautiful, 
full of unsuspected fire, to fan it into white flame. The whole affair would depend on whether she cared for music. If she did, he would pluck the soul out of her. She had saved his life. Well, what of that? He had broken yonder man's bread and eaten his salt. Still, what of that? Hadn't he come from a race of scoundrels? The blood, he had smothered and repressed it all his life, to unleash it once, happen what might, if she were really fond of music. Once again Kitty's glance roved back to Hawksley. This time she encountered a concentration in his unwavering stare. She did not quite like it. Perhaps he was only thinking about something and wasn't actually seeing her. Still, it quieted down the fluttering gaiety of her mood. There was a sunspot of her own that became visible whenever her interest in Cutty's monologue lagged. Perhaps Hawksley had his sunspot. And so, she heard Cutty say, Mr. Hawksley is going to become an American citizen. Kitty, what are some of the principles of good citizenship? To be nice to policemen, not to meddle with politics, because it is vulgar, to vote perfunctorily, to let George do it when there are reforms to be brought about, to keep your hat on when the flag goes by, because otherwise you will attract attention, to find fault without being able to offer remedies, to keep in debt, because life here in America would be monotonous without bill collectors. Cuddy interrupted with a laugh. Kitty, you'll scare Hawksley off the map. Let him know the worst at once, retorted Kitty, flashing a smile at the victim. "'Spoofing me? What?' said Hawksley, appealing to his host. This quality of light irony in a woman was a distinct novelty to Hawksley. She had humour, then? So much the better. An added zest to the game he was planning. He recalled now that she was not of the clinging kind, either. A woman with a humorous turn of mind was ten times more elusive than a purely sentimental one. Give him an hour or two with that old Amati if she really cared for music. She would be coming to the apartment again, some afternoon, when his host was out of the way. Better still, he would call her by telephone, the plea of loneliness. Scoundrel? Of course he was. He was not denying that. He would embark upon this affair without the smug varnish of self-lies. Fire! To play with it! He ate his portion of beefsteak, potatoes, and toast, and emptied his coffee cup. It was really the first substantial meal he had had in many hours. A feeling of satisfaction began to permeate him. He smiled at Miss Frances, who shook her head dubiously. She could not quite make him out pathologically. Perhaps she had been treating him as shell-shocked, when there was nothing at all the matter with his nerves. Presently Kuroki came in with a yellow envelope which he laid at the side of Cuddy's plate. "'Telegrams!' exploded Cuddy. "'Hang it, I don't want any telegrams!' "'Open it and have it over with,' suggested Kitty. "'If you don't mind.' It was the worst kind of news, a summons to Washington for conference, which signified that the government's plans were completed and that shortly he would be on his way to Piraeus. A fine muddle. Hawksley in no condition to send upon his way, Kitty's affair unsettled, the emerald still in camera obscura, Karloff at liberty with his infernal schemes, and Stefani Gregor his prisoner. 
wild horses pulling him two ways. A word and Karloff would come to the end of his rope suddenly. But if he issued that word, the whole fabric he had erected so painstakingly would blow away like cardboard. If those emeralds turned up in the possession of any man but himself, the ensuing complications would be appalling. For he himself would be forced to tell what he knew about the stones. Hawksley would be thrust conspicuously into the limelight, and sooner or later some wild anarch would kill him. Known, Hawksley would not have one chance in a thousand. Kitty would be dragged into the light and harassed, and his own attitude toward her misunderstood all these things if he acted upon his oath. Nevertheless, he determined to risk suspension of operations until he returned from Washington. There was one sound plank to cling to. He had first-hand information that anarchistic elements would remain in their noisome cellars until May 1st. If he were not ordered abroad until after that, no harm would follow his suspension of operations." "'Bad news?' asked Kitty, anxiously. "'Aggravating rather than bad. I am called to Washington. May be gone four or five days. Your official business. You leave things here a bit in the air.' "'I'll stay as long as you need me,' said Miss Francis. "'I'd rather a man now. You've been a brick. You need rest. I have a chap in mind. He'll make our friend here toe the mark. A physical instructor, ex-pugilist, knows all about broken heads.' "'I say, that's ripping,' cried Hawksley. "'Give me your man, and I'll be off your hands within a week. "'The sooner you stop fussing over me, "'the sooner the crack in my head will cease to bother me. "'Kuroki will cook for you, "'and Ryan will put you through the necessary stunts. "'The roof, when the weather permits, "'makes a good exercising ground. "'If you'll excuse me, I'll do some telephoning. "'Kuroki, pack my bag for a five-day trip to Washington. "'I'll take you down to the office, Kitty.' "'I don't fancy I ever will quite understand you,' said Hawksley, leaning back in his chair listlessly. "'Honestly, now, you'd be perfectly justified in bundling me off to some hotel. I have funds. Why all this bother about me?' Cutty smiled. "'When I tackle anything, I like to carry it through. I want to put you on your train.' "'To be reasonably sure that I shan't come back?' "'Precisely, but without smiling.' With a vague yet inclusive nod, Cutty hurried off. "'It is because he is such a thorough sportsman, Mr. Hawksley,' Kitty explained. "'Having accepted certain obligations, he cannot abrogate them offhand.' "'Did I bother you last night? I mean, did my fiddling?' "'Mercy, no!' From the hurdy-gurdy of my childhood down to Kubelik and his successors, I have been more or less music-mad. You play wonderfully.' sudden inexplicable shyness. Hawksley smiled. An hour or two with that old Amati. I am only an unconventional amateur. You should hear Stefani Gregor when the mood is on. He puts something into your soul that makes you wish to go forth at once to do some fine, unselfish act. Stefani Gregor. He thought of the clear white soul of the man who had surrendered imperishable fame to stand between him and the curse of his blood, who had for ten years stood between his mother and the dissolute man whom irony had selected for the part of father. Ten years of diplomacy, tact, patience. Stefani Gregor. There was the blood, predatory and untamed, 
and there was the spirit which the old musician had moulded. He could not harm this girl. Dead or alive, Stefani Gregor would not permit it. Hawksley rose slowly, and without further speech walked to the corridor door. He leaned against the jam for a moment, then went on to his bedroom. "'I'm afraid that breakfast was too much for him,' the nurse ventured. "'An odd young man.' "'Very,' replied Kitty, rather absently. She was trying to analyze that flash of shyness. Meantime, Cutty sat down before the telephone. He wanted Kitty out of town during his absence. In her present excitable mood he was afraid to trust her. She might surrender to any mad impulse that stirred her fancy. So he called up Burlingame, Kitty's chief, and together they manufactured an assignment that was always a pleasant recollection to Kitty. Next Cutty summoned Professor Billy Ryan to the wire, argued and cajoled for ten minutes, and won his point. He was always dealing in futures, banking his favors here and there, and drawing checks against them when needed. Then he tackled his men and issued orders, suspending operations temporarily. He was asked what they should do in case Karloff came out into the open. He answered in such an event not to molest him, but to watch and take note of those with whom he associated. There were big things in the air, and only he himself had hold of all the threads. He relayed this information to the actual chief of the local service, from whom he had borrowed his men. There was no protest. Green spectacles. Quarter to nine, he and Kitty entered a subway car and found a corner to themselves, while Karlov's agent was content with a strap in the crowded end of the car. Karlov, for once, had outthought Cuddy. He had withdrawn his watchers, confident that after a day or so his unknown opponent would withdraw his. During the lull Karlov matured his plans, then resumed operations, calculating that he would have some forty-odd hours leeway. His agent was clever. He had followed Kitty from 80th Street to the Knickerbocker Hotel. There he had lost her. He had loitered on the sidewalk until midnight, and was then convinced that the girl had slipped by. So he had returned to 80th Street, but as late as five in the morning she had not returned. This agent had followed the banker after his visit to Kitty. He had watched the banker's house, seen Cuddy arrive and depart. Taking a chance shot in the dark, he had followed Cuddy to the office building, learned that Cuddy was the owner, and lived in the loft. As Kitty had not returned home by five, he proceeded to take a second chance shot in the dark, stationing himself across the street from the entrance to the office building, thereby solving the riddle uppermost in Karlov's mind. He had found the man in the dress suit. Cuddy, I'm sorry I was such a booby last night, but it was the best thing that could have happened. The pent-upness of it was simply killing me. I hadn't anyone to come to but you, anyone who would understand. I don't know of any man who has a better right to kiss me. I know. You were just trying to buck me up. Clitter-clatter, clitter-clatter. Cuddy stared hard at the cement floor. Marry her, settle a sum on her, and give her her freedom. Molly's girl. Give her a chance to play. He turned. Kitty, do you trust me? Of all the foolish questions, she pressed his arm. Why shouldn't I trust you? Will you marry me? Wait, let me make clear to you what I have in mind. I'm all alone. 
I loved your mother. It breaks my heart that while I have everything in the way of luxuries, you have nothing. I can't settle a sum on you, an income. The world wouldn't understand. Your friends would be asking questions among themselves. This telegram from Washington means but one thing, that in a few weeks I shall be on my way to the East. I shall be mighty unhappy if I have to go leaving you in the rut. This is my idea. Marry me an hour or so before the ship sails. I will leave you a comfortable income. Lord knows how long I shall be gone. Well, I won't write. After a year you can regain your freedom on the grounds of desertion. Simple as falling off a log. It's the one logical way I can help you. Will you? Station after station flashed by. Kitty continued to stare through the window across the way. By and by she turned her face toward him, her eyes shining with tears. Cuddy, there is going to be a nice place in heaven for you some day. I understand. I believe Mother understands, too. Am I selfish? I can't say no to you, and I can't say yes. Yet I should be a liar if I did not say that everything in me leaps toward the idea. It is both hateful and fascinating. Common sense says yes, and something else in me says no. I like dainty things, dainty surroundings. I want to travel, to see something of the world. I once thought I had creative genius, but I might as well face the fact that I haven't. Only by accident will I ever earn more than I'm earning now. In a few years I'll grow old suddenly. You know what the newspaper game does to women. The rush and hurry of it, the excitements, the ceaseless change. It is a furnace, and women shrivel up in it quicker than men. There won't be any nonsense, Kitty. An hour before I go aboard ship, I'll go back to the job, the happiest of men. Molly's girl, taken care of. Just before your father died, I promised him I'd keep an eye on you. I never forgot, but conditions made it impossible. The apartment will be yours as long as you need it. Kuroki, of course, goes with me. It's merely going by convention on the blind side. To leave you something in my will wouldn't serve at all. I'm a tough old codger and may be marked down for a hale old ninety. All I want is to make you happy and carefree. Cuddy, I'd like to curl up in some corner and cry, gratefully. I didn't know there were such men. I just don't know what to do. It isn't as if you were asking me to be your wife. And as you say, I can't accept money. There is a pride in me that rejects the whole thing, but it may be the same fool pride that has cut away my friends. I ought to fall on your neck with joy, and here I am trying to look around corners. You are my father's friend, my mother's, mine. Why shouldn't I accept the proposition? You are alone, too. You have a perfect right to do as you please with your money, and I have an equally perfect right to accept your gifts. We are all afraid of the world, aren't we? That's probably at the bottom of my doddering. Cuddy, what is love? She broke off whimsically. Looking into mirrors and hunting for specks, he answered readily. I mean seriously. So do I. Before I went round to the stage entrance to take your mother out to supper, I used to preen an hour before the mirror. My collar, my cravat, my hair, the nap on my stovepipe, my gloves, 
terrible things. And what happened? Your dad, dressed in his office clothes, came along like a cyclone, walked all over my toes, and swooped up your mother right from under my nose. Now just look the proposition over from all angles. Think of yourself. Let the old world go hang. They'll call it alimony. In a year or so you'll be free, and some chap like Tommy Conover will come along, and bang! You'll know all about love. Here's old Brooklyn Bridge. I'll see you to the elevator. All nonsense that you should have the least hesitance. Fifteen minutes later he was striding along Park Row. By the swing of his stride any onlooker would have believed that Cuddy was in a hurry to arrive somewhere. Instead, one was only walking. Suddenly he stopped in the middle of the sidewalk, with the two currents of pedestrians flowing on each side of him, as a man might stop who saw some wonderful cloud effect. But there was nothing ecstatical in his expression. On the contrary, there was a species of bewildered terror. The psychology of all his recent actions had in a flash become vividly clear. An unbelievable catastrophe had overtaken him. He loved Kitty, loved her with an intense shielding passion, quite unlike that which he had given her mother. Such a thing could happen. He offered not the least combat. The revelation was too smashing to admit of any doubt. It was not a recrudescence of his love for Molly, stirred into action by the association with Molly's daughter. He wanted Kitty for himself, wanted her with every fibre in his body, fiercely, and never could he tell her now. The tragic irony of it all numbed him. Fate hadn't played the game fairly. He was fifty-two, on the far side of the plateau, near sunset. It wasn't a square deal. Still he stood there on the sidewalk, like a rock in the middle of a turbulent stream, rejecting selfish thoughts. Marry Kitty, and tell her the truth afterward. He knew the blood of her, loyalest of the loyal. He could, if he chose, play that sort of game, cheat her. He could not withdraw his proposition. If she accepted it, he would have to carry it through. Cheat her. End of chapter 24 Recording by Vin Riley